I also think I needed to become a mother, to have written all those drafts, to have gone through the pandemic or the Me Too movement or lived under the rise of demagoguery to understand this historical novel, which is set in 1960s China in a new way. I fully believe it, that I needed to live through those years in order to write the book that I'm very proud of today. I'm Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. Every other week, I talk with artists who are also mothers and caregivers about their postpartum creative process. You can find out more about the podcast at www.postpartumproduction.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Vanessa Hua is an award-winning columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle and the author of the national bestseller, A River of Stars. She wrote and most recently published a novel, Forbidden City. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her family. We met in 2009 at the Breadloaf Writers Conference in Middlebury, Vermont, and continued our writerly friendship in LA, where we were both living at that time. Almost a decade ago, Vanessa shared with me what she thought was then a final draft of her book, Forbidden City and which I had the great pleasure of being a beta reader for. Neither of us could have predicted the long journey for this book, which just came out on May 11th of this year, 2022. I'm so proud of Vanessa for sticking with the writing of this book, and I'm excited for readers to get it in their hands soon too. I thought about Vanessa a lot in launching this podcast, in large part because she preceded me in her writer-mother journey by about half a decade. And also, I had a memory of her saying once that her first year of motherhood was a lost year, but it turns out that she was potentially a little bit sleep deprived and doesn't remember that conversation. And it's also possible that I misremembered it as well. I actually don't remember that conversation. I do remember another time when we were both childless, I might've been trying to give you advice based on my own experience in which I tried to get back to work too soon, or I was Mm. too hard on myself. And Mm. I distinctly remember talking to a writer friend who was a man And I Mm. said, how quickly can you go back to work? And he paused and said, "Mm, two weeks, maybe. And a month of your breastfeeding. (laughs) (laughs) Which now I really realize is preposterous. Even though he was a dad that was very involved in his children's lives, it's not the role of the person who gives birth Mm -hmm. or who is breastfeeding. And I will say this, though. We had help. I worked on pages of my novel. But it wasn't until nine months in that I wrote the first draft of a short story that would later become my first published novel, A River of Stars. And I like the symmetry of that, that I had to, took nine months or so to gestate my twins. And in that same way, it took maybe just as long to sort of recover and recuperate and incorporate all those experiences of early motherhood into the short story and which I later turned into a book. Hmm. Lost implies wasted time. But I think I was just trying to remind myself to be patient that just as kids proceed from rolling over to sitting up to cruising to crawling to standing to walking to running, it does take time in that postpartum recovery period to return. You can't go back to who you were. You're someone else now with a new way of seeing the world. Your heart is expanded. And So it's more exciting than ever to be writing. You just have Hmm. less time. 
I'm also curious, given that at nine months out, you wrote this short story that then became such a critical piece of your book, in rethinking those early months, if you were to think of it, well, I guess it's two part, whether or not you did think of that as lost or how you defined that then versus how you define that now. And then seeing that there was something that really was gestated for you in your creative work. Have you ever looked at that time and thought, what was it about that time that influenced that work that came out of it that may not have been directly tied, but we can't ever like fully unpack all of that, right? But what was it about those early months? I will joke with my husband that the amount of sleep deprivation, (laughs) who you were, what you believed, your thinking processes, everything Mm. gets broken down. And so Mm. actually, I even remember when I was working on a river of stars, my editor was asking, oh, could we have some more in the birth scene? But by that point, so much time had passed. I was like, did it get erased? What I remember, and I reached out to you for some suggestions. Reach out to Um, me? Yeah, because you had more recently given birth. Right, so you don't remember that now, so... I was probably too recent and it was like, yes, I yes. was in the fog. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yeah. But in some ways, I wonder if I push things too hard or at the time I took it as a badge of pride to be nursing, bouncing on a exercise ball and typing with wrist guards because I had tendonitis from postpartum swelling. Could I have taken more time to just allow myself to recover? Would I have felt more comfortable about approaching maternity leave if I had sold my book by then, sort of frantic or grasping about what my identity would be if I had achieved certain things professionally. Mm-hmm. But ten and a half years later, I now realize, A, there's no end of wanting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and B, you can't let those external factors determine who you are because they're ultimately external. If anything, I look upon those days, it was very cozy. We got maybe a bit of it back during the pandemic where If that hadn't descended over the globe, it was terrifying, it was horrible, but yet our family became a really tight unit at that time. Mm. And it it was reminiscent of together we had in that first year, unlike any other time. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. I had never thought about that because I think there's like a slowing down that just inevitably happens, right? When you're forced in that early caregiving phase to be so bodily, however you yeah. are caring for your child, however you are feeding them, whoever's like, there's just so much that's desired and required of your body in yeah. those early months and years, even. I mean, it's not really just those early months because it's like, whether it's carrying your child around or depending on their particular needs as well, obviously, whatever spectrum of health they have or whatever journey they're on, there's just so much that's required bodily of you that, huh. Yeah, you had me. Now I'm also just like, wow, I'm really tired, Vanessa. (laughs) Yes. Give yourself permission to recover. That's just at night. You have three kids during the day. I mean, you have three kids all the time, but it's just, it's a lot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Before we started talking live on this podcast, we were catching up a little bit and you had asked about how much writing I'm doing. And I have to say that I'm always really impressed. I feel like you have a very, for lack of a different word, a very professional writing practice that feels very official, if you will. Whereas for me, I always feel like I'm trying to fit this in and I'm really challenged in terms of being much more 
the word is intentional, but it may not even be that. But just looking at the validity and the feeling like this is a really worthy pursuit. Sometimes I feel personally, I get pulled in 5 million directions. The writing is always the last thing I get to. And I feel like you do such a wonderful job of really putting that writing first and saying this is really important. And I'm curious just personally what it is about writing in general, what it is about the works that you have put out there. How does that continue to motivate you? And how are you able to think also as women, as mothers, as you said, that often there's so much interference. How do you find that ability to continue to do that work? It's interesting. There's a writing residency called Hedgebrook, where outside of Seattle on a Whidbey Island, and when you go there, you have dinner at the farmhouse table. And then if you try to bust the dishes or help with the dishes, they're like, no, you're here to write. It's not so much about the help, but the centering, mm-hmm. that realizing that your work and your needs are first. And in that same way that there's endlessly boiling pots that you have to tend mm-hmm. to. But I think the other metaphor I think of is the oxygen masks. You need to put it on yourself mm-hmm. first before you put it on your child. And I try to remind myself that I'm a better mother and wife or daughter or sister, a better person mm-hmm. if I'm feeling fulfilled and am able to work on the thing that I love so much, mm-hmm. writing. And I don't know, there's a gigantic pile of laundry in the living room. Like there's plenty of things where my life can feel quite haphazard and not professional. But I do think my training as a journalist has taught me that to try something out, to know that the first draft is not the last draft. My first draft, I don't outline, but I do afterwards. I call it reverse Mm -hmm. engineering. Mm -hmm. That's when I'll use that part of my brain. And so I love using Google Calendar and I'll, I'll just mark something two weeks from now send draft to my agent or friend. Mm -hmm. So it's just there. It's an appointment I'm making for myself as much as any other appointment I make for the orthodontist or Mm -hmm. pioneer day or something else with, Mm -hmm. with the kids. And I think that can be important too, but just constantly balancing that mother guilt with understanding that this is a part of my life that I have to center at some times of the day. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you keep a very particular schedule then? Well, or it's more like I'm greedy for any time that I can get. (laughs) And so right now the kids are in school, but also sneak time on the weekends before we head out for the day. My hours of power are in the morning as opposed to night. I think some writers I know who have kids wait till the whole house is quiet. But then if Mm -hmm. I did that, I would never fall asleep. (laughs) So (laughs) I just know my body and myself about when I work best. But again, I'm greedy. Sometimes I'm not very choosy. When I can, I'll write in these interstitial moments that we were talking about. You mm-hmm. were mentioning how you write on your phone. I'll jot mm-hmm. notes to myself. It's like running in the background, thinking about it. And then I'll see something that I want to apply. So it's just, again, listening to what interests you amid all the many, many competing demands and distractions. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot of them because you are writing fiction and you're also a columnist with the San Francisco Chronicle. Is your mother still living in your home? Are you all under the same roof? We're three generations under one roof. After my father passed away, moved back to the Bay Area into my childhood home to be with Mm -hmm. my mother, which was a blessing during the pandemic because Mm -hmm. I know so many people were not able to see loved ones during the pandemic. But people always ask like, oh, she must help with the childcare. She does not, but that's fine. I mean, she, up until the pandemic, she was still working as a scientist 
and very busy. And we're just happy to be able to do things together and to keep her safe. Like, frankly, the rise of the anti-Asian hate during the pandemic was very worrisome. She went out for a walk and was gone for too long, kind of worry. So I'm glad, though, that she wasn't alone during the pandemic, like, unfortunately, was the case in some many families. I'm also teaching this semester a low residency program at Warren Wilson. So I've been just finished up a student packet last night. And yeah, I mean, it's inspiring to kind of see what work people are putting out despite everything. I feel like Mm -hmm. we need t-shirts to say despite everything, (laughs) (laughs) how we're soldiering through. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's what honestly is keeping me kind of I don't want to say keeping me alive, but although I do think that these things do feed you and nourish you in ways that probably do literally can keep you healthier. But I feel like knowing, for example, that your book is coming out, knowing that this is also a book that I think I saw a very early draft of. Yes, definitely. Thank, I don't I even thank know you for what it. year that was, 2012? So after it first went out on submission in 2009, there were years and years of rewrites and resubmissions or submissions to other presses. And I never completely put it away. Even when I worked on other books, A River of Stars and Just Seen Other Possibilities, Mm -hmm. in between those getting feedback, I would return to the manuscript for what became Forbidden City because there was something about May, the main character, that I couldn't quit. I don't know if it's just plain stubbornness and that's part of being a writer or anyone who's pursuing something creative that the world may not understand what you're doing or understand what kind of model that you are creating and just somehow figuring a way through. Even though I would have loved for my book to have been purchased when it came close in 2009, I also think I needed to become a mother, to mm. have written all those drafts, to have gone through the pandemic or the Me Too movement or lived under the rise of demagoguery to understand this historical novel, which is set in 1960s China in a new way. I fully believe it, that I needed to live through those years in order to write the book that I'm very proud of today. Hmm. I love that because you're actually making me think about what we started with, which is the lostness of the potential, right? Or this idea and whether or not that is how that was framed in our conversation a long time ago or not, that so many people obviously think of early motherhood, but not only early motherhood, like so many times in your life, especially as a writer or as any sort of creative, as lost time because you're not directly working on that work, right? But to hear that actually your lived experience through those historical and personal moments directly impacted your ability to write that book, right? And for that book to become what it is now versus what it was potentially when I read it. Now I'm really, really curious. I'm personally feeling really heard and I'm feeling way more empowered around. (laughs) I mean, it is true, right? As writers, we are always bringing so much into the work that is not just that time that you're sitting at your desk or wherever it is that you work. And I think that that's a really wonderful point. I think it takes away some of the pressure that one feels that work is only created in a very particular setting, which I also think is really nicely in some ways democratizing of work, right? Because there's so much privilege in the writing world that creates the quote unquote optimal environment for creative production. And so in a sense, if you're able to say, well, it doesn't have to look this way, but my journey looked very different from what you think historically is like how a book is produced actually creates a lot of, I think, hopefully 
opportunity for other writers to see ways in which their lives, their histories, their interactions with the world are really valuable and valid in terms of their own writing and their what they're producing within that juncture. I have a mentor from grad school. She used to joke, she has three daughters grown now. Sometimes you would see in a sweeping novel, writer's note, and there would be a dateline, London, New York, like where you wrote it. And she said her dateline would be in the minivan at pickup or waiting mm-hmm. at the basketball game. So it doesn't have to be a life of glamour. That's great if you can get it. But if not, it's those notes you jot to yourself at the playground, the thing you scribble in the middle of the night. It may feel like nothing, but even snow accumulates, right? Mm-hmm. Like what seems weightless with enough of it, it, it has shape and it has weight. Hmm. I like that. Thank you. (laughs) I feel like I need to, well, I will be probably pulling these quotes and like tacking them on my wall to remind me. (laughs) T-shirts, t-shirts or quotes on the wall. (laughs) Vanessa, your merchandising capabilities, you have not (laughs) tapped into that ability enough, but I appreciate it every time I'm at any of your events. It's always fun. (laughs) You make the book events way more fun than they ever used to be, I think. But if we could talk just a touch about in terms of the book coming out, well, tell us a little bit more about this book, first of all. And also you're mentioning motherhood as being in many ways integral to the book. And I'm curious how that's come into play now that I haven't read this final, final draft. Yeah. Well, so Forbidden City is the story of Chairman Mao's teenage protege lover and poster child for the Cultural Revolution. And the main character's name is May, and she's a young girl plucked from the village who goes to the capital for a mysterious duty. And there she learns that she will be joining a dance troupe because this is what's inspired by true events is that Chairman Mao was a fan of ballroom dancing. In fact, an American journalist, Agnes Smedley, taught him and other top cotter how to foxtrot and square dance in the rebel stronghold of Yan'an in Mm. the late 1930s. So the main character is a teenage girl, and she's inspired by the young women I met as a reporter in China, the ones who would leave home thousands of miles away, everything they ever knew to work in the factories. And Mm -hmm. life was hard. The hours were long. They wanted a different life than the one handed down to them. When I tried to find research, there wasn't much. The chairman's physician wrote a memoir and said, somewhat dismissively, I think, oh, for these young women, it was the most exhilarating moment of their lives. And I knew Mm. it had to be more complicated than that, that that wasn't the end of the story. Mm. And what's more, especially since some of them became his companions, they had titles, confidential clerk or nurse, they would handle his correspondence or interpret what he was saying when his speech was garbled. Mm. And I was really wondering what it was like for a young woman to meet him after she'd been raised to believe he was a god. And in terms of becoming a parent, I think it made me rethink the scenes that sort of the dynamic between May and her parents, between Mao and there's a whole section on sort of like his family relations. And there's some other, it's a spoiler, I can't say, but it's also (laughs) in the book as well. So first of all, I'm really excited to read it because (laughs) I'm like, I'm trying to think back on that draft. I remember really being drawn to the character. I think one thing that as a writer, you know, I've always really appreciated in your work is just how character driven your work is. And I in terms of just the work that you do as a writer to really dig into what it is like to be within the experience of your particular characters. So I really have appreciated that. And to that end, you do a lot of writing about your personal life too. 
And I'm curious when looking at, especially at your columns, your children do come up so much. I'm curious how you navigate that and also whether or not you feel like you would have a column without them. I mean, they are really like such a big, they are characters in your literal world and also in your writing world in terms of the columns. I'm wondering what that means to you. I don't know if we've ever really talked about that and what it is to write about things that are very personal to you that aren't then fictionalized. Right. They do have pseudonyms. They go by Dee Dee and Guga, which means big brother and little brother, because they're twins. They're born 26 minutes apart, the 26 longest minutes of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I was particularly drawn to this statement Vanessa made about the longest 26 minutes of her life and asked if she'd done any writing about this moment specifically, but she hadn't. I was very interested, too, in how she navigates the private and public in her work, especially when she's both a novelist and a journalist, which require different hats and different sets of writing tools. In that sense, they're protected that way. I don't say where I live. Mm. And I hope readers understand, even though I am inviting them into my life, everything I write is true. It's only a part of my life, certainly Mm. only a part of their life as well. But on the other hand, I feel so honored that I've been able to establish this intimate relationship with readers who week after week see what they're up to. And I always strive to look at the bigger picture, writing about a camping trip, having to flee different, not actually flee, but just have to trip after trip getting canceled because of wildfires is an opportunity to talk about climate change and what that Mm -hmm. means if that's the memories of your childhood or during Mm -hmm. the racial reckoning with the Black Lives Matter movement, just talking about that history and how to shine a light onto systems of power and systems of oppression in ways that kids can learn. That was not how I learned history, let's Mm -hmm. say. But yeah, I think I'd still have a column. They're not in this week's, let's say. And I write often for other outlets about all sorts of topics from pop culture to social justice, but it's just a reflection of who I am. I don't say like, today I'm going to be in mom mode and my work will be in reflect that. I think regardless, forevermore, I'm a mom. And so even if I'm writing characters that are not moms, then I'm still bringing that lens, that greater understanding that I feel motherhood has brought me Mm -hmm. to character assessing situations or dynamics. I'm still the writer. I always was very curious about the world, figure out why, and telling those stories either in journalism or in fiction. Mm. I find that what draws me to your ability to pull from the tiniest, seemingly smallest moment, whether it's the experience recently of going to Disneyland, for example, or (laughs) like you said, camping or conversations that you have with your children, and then extrapolating a much bigger story out of that is really beautiful and poignant and is the work that we do as both writers and as parents, right? Of like taking these tiny moments and ensuring that they are resonant for our children too, or it's nothing and that's fine too. But I do think that you have an ability to see things and then translate that into writing. That is really critical, I think, in the world because sometimes I think we can think that these tiny things don't have resonance or that they don't have power. And I think by your ability to mine them for their power is really important too. So I've really- Yeah, thank you. I mean, something I always tell my students is it's in the specific that we find the universal that mm. I remember a reader wrote me and said, oh, I'm not Chinese. I don't have children. I don't live with my mom, but I really enjoy <laughs> your column. I can still relate. 
I mean, if anything, as we've seen, dehumanization of Asian Americans, stereotypes that are not just about hurt feelings, but can lead to hate and attacks. And so my personal writing is my way of just adding to the narrative so that we don't appear to be a monolith, that we can be as fully complex as any other depiction of other groups in the media. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I think that Again, I'm really grateful personally for the work that I've seen you be able to do professionally as well as personally. I'm grateful to have gotten that lens on both, obviously, like your personal world and your professional world. And so I'm just, again, as a friend and fellow writer, I'm really impressed by your navigation of both of those. And also, like you said, how you're able to maintain a sense of privacy too, while you do that, while you're able to share too, because I think that's something that we don't see a lot and that there's so much right of this need to divulge so much and often about others, right? Like about others in our lives that may not be the best space to do that, whether it's on social media or elsewhere. I mean, as writers, it's something I think as parents too, that I think a lot about in terms of how much I share about my children's private lives and private worlds on the page. And I think, thankfully, as a fiction writer, I think that somehow can be an easier navigation, right? Because you pull these like tiny little threads and then completely blow them up in fiction that no one would even be able to unpack where they truly lie. But whereas, for example, in your columns and your journalism, like that's a slipperier space, I think. But I think that you've navigated that really beautifully. So Okay, I don't want to take up too much of your super precious time right now because I know you have a lot going on <laughs> with your book launch. Well, actually, I mean, if there's anything that I haven't touched upon that you feel like you really want to talk about, especially in relating to your work coming out right now. Before I became a mother and since I hadn't published a book, I was very concerned my time wouldn't be my own. Where would my identity go as a writer is something I'd wanted to do since I was a kid. And Obviously, along the way, there were lots of disappointments and rejections, and mm -hmm. I still kept at it. But I also look at the book with much gratitude, knowing that it could have very easily gone the other way, and that mm -hmm. any book that you see out on shelves, it's a miracle because it took so many people, the village of people, of supporters, the editor, the agent, the truck driver who hands mm -hmm. the box off at the end, very humbling. I found this with my other works that at readings, people will say, this book helped me feel made visible, helped me understand, mm -hmm. helped me feel that I could tell my own story. So if my book mm -hmm. can do that again, if Forbidden City can help open the way for others, or even this conversation, that's what I hope for. Yeah, thank you. I don't know how you have enough literal, physical, and emotional space for the amount of generosity that you provide in the world. And so it is not at all surprising to me that you've been able to find homes for the work that you're doing because you're an incredibly generous person and writer. And so I hope that you, at the same time, are able to protect your space moving <laughs> yes. forward because I can imagine with all that's going on with raising children and during what is this like end pandemic, whatever we are in phase of the world, yeah. Ukraine, politically, all that's going on in the US, there's obviously a lot to hold. And then to be able to launch a book within all of that is really impressive. So I'm excited for what's to come for you. I hope that you can maintain some sanity and health too for yourself because it's a lot. One thing that I'm asking everyone is because of the title of the podcast, which has so many different interpretations, Vanessa Hua, how do you define postpartum? 
And how do you define production? I didn't follow this myself, but by Chinese tradition, the postpartum period is very specific. It's one month where you're supposed to recover, eat special foods. You're not supposed to get visitors. You're not supposed to go outside. You're not supposed to wash your hair even、mm-hmm. for fear of introducing anything that might like introducing an infection or anything that might bring harm to the baby. And I think for me, it was something where I, in some ways, rushed too quickly back into things. I remember lying in bed and. Trying to do leg lifts, <laughs> but also being so weak, I couldn't make it to the end of the block. But I recovered in the end, and I think I don't know if postpartum I have a length of time set on it, but it's more about that period in which there's not much daylight between you and the pregnancy and birth itself. So I don't know with the first three to six months, maybe. But in terms of production, I think it's not. Measured in the ways that you might measure them before having kids, because、mm. your time isn't your own. So if you are able to have one logical, articulate thought that day about your book, that feels productive to me. It's like you're on a different planet suddenly, where the gravity is different. So because、mm. <laughs> it takes a lot more effort to jump again, and so not to say that having kids weighs you down, but I'm just saying <laughs> it'll be a bit before you can start bounding around the moon again,、mm. if ever again. Let's say. But just understanding that and having the patience to understand that <laughs> your management consulted metrics aren't going to look the same after as they did before, at least not for a while. At least not for a while. Oh, you've opened、yeah. up a door there. <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe never. I just want to leave it open to different possibilities for how people might. Right. Right. No, I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Oh, all right. I want to make sure that you go out and conquer this book launch. I'm excited <laughs> for all that's to come, and we will definitely be including all sorts of links so that everyone can know what's going on, have access to the book. Reading Vanessa's manuscript almost a decade ago and knowing where it's headed now makes me really excited to finally have Forbidden City in my hands. I know that for me. Motherhood has dramatically changed my writing, and like Vanessa, it's hard to imagine it any differently. Because Vanessa's children are now school-aged, it was inspiring for me to sit with her in this conversation and look at the wide scope of her writing and her mothering, where those two have intersected and where they've diverged. I feel honored to have met Vanessa when we were both fledgling writers and without children under our own care, and to see how fervently she's continued to pursue her writing career. Vanessa's book, *The Forbidden City*, was released on May 11th. You can find out more about Vanessa at vanessahua.com. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A-H-U-A.com. I'm your host, Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. This will help us reach more listeners like you. Who are navigating the joys and pitfalls of artistic and parenting identities? For regular updates, visit our website postpartumproduction.com, follow us on Instagram at postpartumproductionpodcast, and subscribe to our podcast newsletter on Substack. Thank you for listening, and we are so grateful to have you with us on this journey. Postpartum may feel like forever, and sometimes it may feel very lonely, but you're not alone here. <laughs>